Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 81st episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. Morning, Mark. It's nice to get back in the saddle here in 21, get back into our routine. Yeah, we've had a couple uh, remote podcasts and through Zoom and that type of thing, so it's nice to be back on a normal schedule here. Yes, I know the listeners are probably looking forward to a normal format as well. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, as always, we'll take the first few minutes to recap the performance um, for the year so far, since we are still in January. And these numbers are as of the market close on January 19th. Um, And the data is from Coifin. So the S&P 500 index is up 1.14% to start the year. The Dow up 1.12%, not far behind. The NASDAQ lagging a little bit. Uh, 0.86% for the year so far. Slackers. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is up 8.87% to start the year. So small cap outperformance has continued from the end of 2020. The Vanguard International ETF, ex-United States, also outperforming at positive 3.84% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.09%. The two-year treasury yield sits at 0.14%, and the 10-year treasury yield just over 1% at 1.1%. So that's the first time that happened in a long time, I think since March. First time the 10-year treasury yields over 1%. So I had two observations. You had the first one. My second observation is that relative outperformance of international which I think you would agree with his statements primarily due to the weak dollar. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, and that's actually one of the things we were going to discuss on the big news and headlines is that the dollar continues to weaken and weaken. And what that means is that, um, you know, when the dollar weekends, there's a strong correlation with international equities outperforming U.S. equities. Um, and that hasn't been the case, obviously, for the past decade. But we are seeing signs of that trend changing around. I absolutely agree. And the other area for listeners to note is uh, relative strength in commodity prices, because a lot of these commodities are denominated in U.S. dollars. Mm -hmm. So that could be things like um, oil, gasoline. It could be like the metals. Um, It could be some of the items like copper. So I think a lot of those commodities could have some pricing pressure if the dollar continues to weaken, at least historically, that's what it's done. Right. Exactly. Yep. Um. So the big news, obviously, today is that Joe Biden will be sworn in as the 46th president of the United States today. So all eyes will be on that. Um, And the next thing is that earnings season has also kicked off, and that started last week with some of the major banks reporting. Um, So everyone can expect several news headlines over the next few weeks as some of the the bigger companies in the world are set to report. And so far, um, earnings have been pretty positive, Matt. Um, Netflix reported huge numbers last night, and then the banks have been reporting pretty pretty positive numbers as well. So we'll see if that uh, is just an early reporting type of thing or if that continues through the rest of earnings season. One thing I think that will occur after this week is I think the 
sentiment or the tone in the market's going to change from politically motivated headlines, Mark, to more of these company-specific fundamental reports. So IE, XYZ company reported earnings, and it's going to bring the focus back to, wow, where's that stock sitting in comparison to others, rather than everyone making emotional-based decisions based upon the political environment. Right. I'm looking forward to, in my opinion, kind of the, the tone and the sentiment changing here in the near future. Yeah. Short term. Yeah. Well, the first thing I have for people uh, should take the focus away from the political spectrum. And this okay. was a tweet by Ryan Dietrich from LPL on January 12th. And he said this, a good start to the year can be a sign of better times ahead. The first five days of 2021 saw the S&P 500 up a very impressive 1.8% year to date. Historically, when the first five days are up greater than 1.5%, the full year has been up 15.6% on average and higher more than 90% of the time. And this was going back all the way to 1950, Matt. So there were only two years in this span where the first five days of the S&P 500 index return was up greater than 1.5% and the rest of the year was negative. That was back in 1973. The S&P was down 17.4%. And in 2018, not too long ago, uh, the S&P finished down for the year by 6.2%. So um, pretty bullish uh, stats, if you ask me. Yeah. And even look at 2010. I mean, 2010 was, you know, a year right after that presidential election. And you had the market up 12.8% for the S&P, it says. I mean, this is a pretty bullish data set uh, from my perspective. Yeah. And again, you know, we got to look at history. And I think lately, I'm hearing a lot of people say to me, oh, it's different this time because of their perceptions of the political environment. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a dangerous thing to say. You know, I think we got to look at history and these data points definitely have uh, some justification. Right. Right. Uh, the next thing I had was a article uh, written by J.C. Peretz on All Star Charts on January 13th. And this was titled The Stealth Correction. Ooh, I think I might know where this is going. Yeah. So, you know, everyone is talking, Matt, about how there has to be a correction coming. There has to be a correction. The market's coming. at an all time high. Right. Exactly. But if you and this is what JC points out, if you take a look at all of the, you know, the fang names, the Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, they really have gone nowhere to down 10 to 20 percent over the past couple of months. I could those even are the biggest companies six, in the up world. To six in some of these. Like, right. Yeah, keep going. So uh, JC starts the article by saying, as we get into 2021, the same question keeps coming. JC, when are we going to see a correction in the market? While it is true that some stocks have gone up and others have gone up a lot in recent months, the biggest stocks of them all have not. Google, Apple, Microsoft, and Amazon are the four biggest companies in the world. Throw in fellow behemoths, Facebook and Alibaba, and now we're pushing $8 trillion in market cap. That's big time money. And you know what those stocks have done since September 2nd? Nothing. Nothing. So since September 2nd, and again, this was back on January 13th. So from September 2nd through January 13th, Google only up 1.53%. Apple down 0.22%. Microsoft down 6.3%. Amazon down 10.3%. Facebook down almost 17% and Alibaba down over 20%. So he finishes off by saying it wasn't too long ago that the narrative 
was it was only five stocks driving this market higher. That was hilarious then and even more hilarious now. So I think it's funny because, you know, everyone keeps calling for a market correction or a sell off in stocks, but these big names have been doing just that in September and or since September. And, you know, this is healthy, I think, Matt, for the market, because if the market just kept going higher every single day, then that would have me concerned. But that's not the case here. And even with these names going nowhere, the biggest names in the market are selling off a little bit since September, the market continues to move higher and higher. And that to me is rotation. And that to me is healthy. You were doing our listeners a fabulous service by bringing this point up. Because I think the perception with the headlines right now with the media is things are at nosebleed levels, uh, valuations are insane, the market's at a 52-week high. I mean, keep going down the rabbit hole with these narratives. But if you pull up charts of this stuff, most of them are not showing this. Right. And so I, I think that's an important point to make, is that just because you see that does not paint a broad stroke that all these names are trading at their highest point ever. It's not true. Mm -hmm. And there are pockets of value out there. I mean, you and I could, we're not going to name names in the podcast, but you and I look at it and we like names right now. Mm -hmm. So I, I just think that, you know, that that perception that we're at an all time high and it can't go any higher is, in my opinion, a false narrative. Yeah. And I think it says a lot about the strength of the market right now that, that we keep rotating, can continue to hit all time highs without Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, Google at all time highs. And I'm going to pull up a Mark McEvely statement that is bullish. Right, right. And That's it's not bullish. just it's not just U.S. There's come there's, you know, stocks uh, all over the world are hitting all time highs. That's bullish. Um, so very bullish. It's not bearish, in my opinion. I have to take a uh, quote from your bag, my friend. <laughs> I like it. Um, the last thing I had was an article written by Dan Russo on Substack titled, Here We Go Again on January 6th. And again, this kind of has to do uh, with election media noise. Okay, okay this will be good. So he says, there was an election yesterday, as I'm sure you were all aware. And again, this was at the day after the Georgia um, Senate runoffs. Okay. The soul of the nation hangs in the balance. It is the most important election since the last election. Oh, geez. How many times? The outcome is going to have far reaching implications. I'm being sarcastic. The drama around elections has become so built up that I find it hard to tune out. But it is exactly what needs to be done, especially as investors. Let's do a quick recap. In 2016, we were told that there was no way Donald Trump could beat Hillary Clinton, but if somehow he pulled off a miracle, the market would crash. From the night of the election on November 8th, 2016 until January 25th, 2018, the S&P rallied, not crashed, by 33% without much in the way of counter-trend moves to the downside. The president himself told us all that if Vice President Biden won, that the market was going to crash. <laughs> Since the close of trading on November 3rd, 2020, the S&P 500 is up, not down, by 11%. I have heard stories of people who were going to take all their money out of the market because VP Biden won. I just shake my head and follow the trends. And, you know, the only thing I have to add to this is just election commentary is all noise. You know, perfectly said. Yeah, perfectly said. 
And he ends by saying, even if the Democrats were to win both seats, which they did, obviously, they are not going to have a large enough majority to pass anything extreme when it comes to large tax increases and unfettered spending. I think that the message of the population on election night was that we don't want extremes in either direction. If this assessment is true, I have to think that this is a bullish setup for the equity market. Cha-ching. So, again, just another reason why you can't let politics influence your investment portfolio. I was just going to end with that also. So, again, I just want to put it in my own words for listeners, Mark. Do not let your political feelings cloud your longer-term financial plan. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say it like that. That's right. Okay. When you make a financial plan, politics isn't involved in it. No, so it not. shouldn't be involved with it if it wasn't there in the beginning. There you go. Um, turn over to you for one thing before we get into a rather long financial planning topic of the week. Thank you, Mark. I have one for listeners. This is a chart that was posted on the Zero Hedge uh, tw um, Twitter feed. Big Zero Hedge guy. You know, it's that all right, all right. I gotta take a step back. So, for listeners, Zero Hedge uh, is definitely an interesting um, source of data. Very controversial. Very controversial. <laughs> and I definitely am not, you know, pro Zero Hedge because a lot of their content does tend to be very negative or bearish. Okay. I just like to see all sides. No, I like it. I, I like love it. it. I yeah. love it. So this piece, the source is from the Congressional Budget Office. Um, they posted a, a chart, and Jenna's going to get this on our social media sites uh, so you can access it. And uh, Mark, you want to remind listeners how they can find us on social media? Yeah. Um, so we're on uh, on Twitter and LinkedIn. So if you go to Jessup Wealth Management or at Jessup Wealth Management, um, or you just search for Jessup Wealth Management, you'll find us on Twitter, you'll find us on LinkedIn, you'll find us on Facebook. Um, so just go ahead and search all of our names. And then I'm at Mark McEvely on Twitter and you're at Matthew C. Jessup, I believe, on Twitter. So Correct. we'll try to share this stuff from our, our pages as well going forward. And Instagram. And Jenna just reminded us, and on Instagram, too, at Jessup Wolf. Love that. So um, this chart from the Congressional Budget Office on January 14th is in regards to the America's debt to GDP. OK, mm -hmm. so for listeners, one way a country could be viewed um, at what their debt load is, is there has to be a comparison benchmark. Right. Mm -hmm. So in this case, countries tend to compare their debt level to their country's economic output of gross domestic product or GDP, mm -hmm. okay? And so right now, this chart is indicating that we are sitting just a little bit around 100% of debt to GDP, maybe just a tad bit more, maybe 105. Now, the reason I think this chart is useful for listeners is with the Democrats sweeping all three areas of the House, the Senate, and the presidency, there are even Democrats out there who are concerned about overspending mm -hmm. and the sustainability of that for the U.S. That's why I wanted to share this chart, Mark, because when you compare this to a lot of other developed nations in the world, let's just take a lot of the countries in the Eurozone. A majority of those have debt to GDPs from about 140 to 160 percent of debt to GDP. So America, we're around 100 percent. Not too bad. On this chart, it's a prediction of where we're going to be. So at what point are they expecting us to have similar debt loads that a lot of these Eurozone countries do? 
on this chart that you'll see when you pull it up, it's around the year of 2035 is the Congressional Budget Office's estimation. I hate their estimations, by the way. They're usually wrong. Very wrong. Okay. So the reason I want to put this up, though, is the perception that, well, we can't keep this up. And just as people thought the Federal Reserve could not keep up monetary easing in flushing the system with liquidity, we can keep printing money, I think, for some time. I'm not negating that it's going to have negative side effects at some point. But the perception that we can't do this for some time, I think, is a false narrative. Mm -hmm. I wanted to show this chart to kind of prove where we're at in this cycle by the perception of an unbiased third party doing the projection. It's not someone that's leaning left or right. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to see what your thoughts were about that. Yeah, well, I think the first thing to point out is that I think the government would be dumb not to borrow money right now right because interest rates are so low it's costing them virtually nothing why you know why would they use their own money other than the fact that they don't have it (laughs) but um you know i think it's as easy as that so the government as long as interest rates stay low for a long period of time i think that they're going to continue to borrow at these low rates because you know why not do it it's almost free so if you were the new treasury secretary we have treasury Mm -hmm. secretary mark mcevely wouldn't you issue long dated bonds as much as you could and refi our debt at yeah. these low rates? Yeah, I would. So I would be 30 issuing year, 30 year bonds year. like it's candy. 50 okay? year, 100 year. We've seen that overseas. 50 year issuing them like a Skittles. Mm-hmm. I mean, it'd just be just every week. Yeah. I wonder if Janet's going to do the same thing eventually. Be smart. Or maybe it won't even be her. Maybe it'll be the, the person after or the person after that. Who knows? It'd be smart. But again, I don't think, <clears throat> you know, people, th- we've been in debt for a long time, guys. And it's not we're going still away doing, anytime yeah, soon. We're still doing okay. So I think that the, I think that this conversation is way overblown. Just because the government has a high debt load doesn't mean we can't have good, you know, stock market returns. That's been that's been debunked several, several times before. So I the think other, last comment I'll make with this chart is we were at hundred percent debt to GDP back in World War II, and it went down to under fifty percent as we grew economically post World mm-hmm. War II. Right, because so there's there's two ways to, to lower to to get this ratio lower. Right, it's either increase economic output or decrease that. Bingo, you can do it both ways. Bingo, pull both levers. That's right, levers. So anyway, okay, well, back to you, good. Mark. I thought it was a good chart. We'll get that on our social media. Yeah. Um. So financial planning topic of the week uh, came from an article in Forbes I was reading um, that copied an excerpt from Ben Carlson's new book. Um, and that was titled everything you need to know about saving for retirement. And we talk about Ben's work a lot on the podcast because, because he simply just puts out great content. Um, and this excerpt lists 20 important personal finance laws to live by. Okay. And this is a really good piece that, um, I think for those who are newer to the world of investing and financial planning, it'd be good for them and easy for them to understand and to follow. Okay. Here we go. So we'll see to what level you agree or or disagree with these. Yes, and for listeners, I have not heard these yet, so you're going to have my first unfiltered thoughts, (laughs) which is a dangerous Um, thing. So we're going to go through all 20, okay? All right. Uh, The first is avoid credit card debt like the plague. The first rule of personal finance is never carry a credit card balance. Credit card borrowing rates are egregiously high, and paying those rates is an easy way to negatively compound your net worth. Absolutely agree. Okay, move on. 
Building credit is important. Likely the big, biggest expense over your lifetime will be interest costs on your mortgage, car loans, and student loans. Having a solid credit score can save you tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars by lowering your borrowing costs. Absolutely agree. Yeah, and it's just simple that you know the higher your credit score, uh, the more access to cheaper money that you have. That's right. Right. Number three is income is not the same as savings. There's a huge difference between making a lot of money and becoming wealthy because your net worth is more important than how much money you make. Having a high income does not automatically make you rich. Having a low income does not automatically make you poor. All that matters is how much of your income you set aside and how much you spend. I agree, and I want to add something to this. Mm -hmm. I want to remind listeners of what we call our plus 1% saving strategy. So what we do, listeners, with a lot of clients is, you know, as they're getting going in their savings plan, we recommend that at least annually you raise your savings rate by at least 1% a year. And it is a really good way over time to really get your savings rate up. And it works out really well. You tend not to notice it. It's a lot easier going to somebody and saying, you need to be saving 10% and you got to go from zero savings rate to 10. That's a cash flow shock. Where if we do 1% a year, you'll start raising that, you won't even notice. Yeah. I'll give you one thing. You do have a knack for getting ahead of me on things. You can just tell where this conversation is going because that's number 12. Save a little more each year. Boom. So we start checking them off the can, list, baby. We can skip number 12 then. <laughs> um, number four, um, saving is more important than investing. We've talked about this several Did times Did you write before. this section of the bookmark? Yeah, I wish. <laughs> Pay yourself first is such simple advice, but so few people do this. The best investment decision you can make is setting a high savings rate because it gives you a huge margin of safety in life. You have no control over the level of interest rates, stock market performance, or the timing of recessions and bear markets, but you can control your savings rate. And, you know, I think a really, really good savings rate is 20% of someone's income. But for a lot of people, it's going to take time to get there. But you have to take the baby steps to eventually get to that point. And if you get to the point where you're saving 20% of your income per year, I think people are going to be in a really, really good spot. Yeah, I think it's very rare that somebody just goes from saving zero to saving 20 overnight. Right. I mean, that is that's a big move. The people that tend to do it and stick with it are the ones that make those small baby steps, as you're indicating, Mark, mm-hmm. and consistently do yeah. it. Yeah, or they started you know, saving 20% of their income from the get-go, which most people have not done. Exactly. Number five that kind of ties into this is live below your means, not within your means. Living above, within or above your means is how you end up going from paycheck to paycheck without ever truly building wealth. The only way to get ahead is by living below your means and setting aside a portion of your income for the future. Agree. Number six, if you want to understand your priorities, look at where you spend money each month. You have to understand your spending habits if you ever wish to gain control of your finances. The goal is to spend money on things that are important to you, but cut back everywhere else. And if you pay yourself first, you don't have to worry about budgeting. You just spend whatever is left over on the things that truly matter to you. And this is what we talked about before, too, is just spending things on on what you love. And I call this guilt-free spending. Yeah, have a budget. And when you have that, if you can completely spend that discretionary money, as you said, 100% guilt-free. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and a, a good book that kind of goes over this um, is by Ramit Satith, and he uh, wrote a book called I'll Teach You to Be Rich, and it's very, very simple for people to understand, but it helps with budgeting and helps you know where to direct where your money is going. So I recommend that book if, if anyone wants to read a good one about budgeting. Okay. Automate everything. The best way to save more, avoid late fees, and make your life easier is to automate as much of your financial life as possible. The goal is to make the big decisions up front so you don't need to waste so much time and energy tendering to your finances. Agree. Get the big purchases right. I know I shouldn't be so judgmental, but whenever I see fifty to $70,000 SUVs on the road or enormous McMansions, the first thing that pops into my head is I wonder how much they have saved for retirement. Personal finance experts love to debate the, the minutia of lattes, but the most important purchases in terms of keeping your finances in order will be the big ones, housing and transportation. Overextending yourself on these two purchases can be a killer because they represent fixed costs and come with more ancillary expenses than most people realize. On that, I favor more of the cars than I do the houses because mm -hmm. the cars tend to be a depreciating <clears throat> asset. Right. Right. Where the house traditionally does appreciate over time. So I think there's two different animals there, mm -hmm. but definitely on the car side, you know, you have to go into it knowing that it's going to depreciate and you're spending that money for an enjoyment. Right, exactly. And to add to that, if cars are your thing and that's truly what you love, then by all means, go ahead and do it. You're that's just right. going to have to make the decision of where to cut. That's right. Other it has to be life. a cognizant decision. Right. And, you know, the reality of it is it's unrealistic that someone has an everyday driver that's an antique car. Mm -hmm. It just does not going to happen. No, no. Um, number nine, build up your liquid savings account. Your monthly budget should take into account the fact that there are infrequent yet predictable expenses you'll need to take care on occasion. Weddings, vacations, car repairs, and health scares never occur on a set schedule, but you can plan on paying for these events by setting aside small amounts of money each month to better prepare yourself when life inevitably gets in the way. I think you got to know, I agree. I think listeners just have to understand that we are in a zero virtual interest rate environment and that money that they have in their emergency fund mm -hmm. is not meant to get a return right now. Right. Yeah. It's, it has to be it's realistic, not what it's for. Right? Yeah. And I think so many people get stuck in this quandary that, well, I want to keep um, an emergency savings. I'm not going to earn anything. Mm -hmm. It's not meant to right now. No, that's not the not, goal of it. It's not. It's their liquid cash that is not at risk that you can take if an emergency pops up. And I just say that because sometimes we just have to be open and honest about that. Mm -hmm. And I think that we just get stuck. That I want to be smart about my money. It's like, that's not the goal of that money. No, no, it's not. Number 10 is cover your insurable needs. My friend and colleague, Jonathan Novi likes to remind people, remind me that people buy insurance because there will be a financial impact on their business or family if they were to die or become disabled. The idea is to measure that, excuse me, the idea is to measure the impact in dollars and if possible, insure against it. So, you know, an easy calculation for people that I think can understand, Matt, is their annual income times their years left to see how much life insurance they meet. Because um, my personal opinion, it's there to replace income. So I think term insurance is perfect for that. I agree. Um, so, if people want an easy way to determine how much life insurance they think they need, I think that's an easy way to do it. Okay. Number 11, always get the match. I can't tell you how many times <clears throat> I've talked to people who aren't saving enough in their 401k to get the employer match. That's like turning down a portion of your paycheck each payday. 
At a minimum, you should always save enough to get the match so you're not leaving free money on the table. Love that. Talked about that before. Yep. Uh, We're going to skip over number 12. Number 13, choose your friends, neighborhood, and spouse wisely. Trying to keep up with the spendthrift friends or neighbors is a never-ending game with no true winners. Find people to spend your life with who have similar money views as you, and it will save you a lot of unnecessary stress, envy, and wasteful spending. Yes. Talk about money more often. It takes all of five minutes before I hear about politics in almost any conversation these days, but somehow money is still a taboo subject. Talk to your spouse about money. Ask others for help. Don't allow financial problems to linger and get worse. Money is a topic that impacts almost every aspect of your life in some way. It's too important to ignore and sweep under the rug. Absolutely. And I think this is like from a traditional family standpoint, it was always like a no-no to talk about money. But I think it's more detrimental to not talk about it than to have the conversation. I agree. I think a lot of the motivation with families is, well, I want to make sure my kids remain motivated in life. and They just don't rely upon, you know, my inheritance. And most kids don't even think that way at all. Mm -hmm. And but I think for some reason in parents' minds, that's one of the roadblocks for them to talk about money. I think. Right. And I think another way to tackle it is instead of doing that, flip it on its head and say, yeah, you, you can know how much I have. And here's what I did to get there. Right. There you go. So to instill in them, you know, what they need to do to be able to have that down the road or be able to sustain their lifestyle down the road is, you know, this is what I did to get to that point. There you it didn't go. Just, it didn't just pluck that off the money tree in the backyard. I wish it was that easy. I know. No, me too. It'd be nice to have a money tree. Maybe someday it'll be, we won't get into that, but. <laughs> um, that would cut the mustard. Yeah, <laughs> that would cut the mustard. You snuck it in. <laughs> snuck it in. Um, material purchases won't make you happier in the long run. Buying stuff won't make you happier or wealthier because true wealth is all the stuff that you don't waste money on. Experiences give you a better bang for your buck and time spent with the people you love is one of the best investments you can make. You're seeing that trend already, Mm -hmm. right? And before COVID hit, you saw a lot more travel. You saw a lot more experiences people would pay for when they would travel. And, um, I think that'll come back. Mm-hmm. When you know, in a post COVID environment. Yeah, I think it will too. Read a book or 10. There are countless personal finance books out there. This stuff should be taught in every high school and college, but it isn't. No one is going to care about your money decisions more than you invest some money, time and energy into yourself. It's the best investment you can make. Yes. Mm-hmm. 17. Know where you stand. Everyone should have a back-of-the-envelope idea of their true net worth. That means adding up all of your assets and subtracting any debts. This way, you can get some. You can set some general expectations about savings rates, market returns, and portfolio growth to give yourself some goalposts in the future. Love that. Number 18, taxes matter. Take advantage of as many tax breaks as you can and always understand your personal tax situation. The biggest layups in this category include taking advantage of as many tax-deferred savings vehicles as humanly possible and keeping your trading to a minimum when investing in taxable accounts to avoid paying higher short-term capital gains taxes. Yes. Number 19, make more money. Saving and or cutting back is a great way to get ahead, but it's an incomplete strategy if you're not trying to earn more by enhancing your career. Too many people are stuck in the mindset that there's nothing they can do to get a better job, take on more responsibilities, or earn a higher pay. 
That's nonsense. You must learn how to sell yourself, improve your skills, and negotiate a higher income over time. I love that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with going to your boss or employer and saying, listen, you know, I have the desire over the next X amount of years or months to to grow in my position. I'd like to earn this. And so what other responsibilities can you entrust me with? Mm hmm. Nothing wrong with having that conversation. No, not at all. And it goes back to the two lovers thing, right? There's there's two ways you can increase your, your savings rate. Uh, you can cut your spending or you can make more money, right? So, uh, and there's no problem with doing both. Sure. And a lot of the times employers will, you know, they'll uh, help you um, or help pay for you to, um, you know, get more education or another degree to help them take on more responsibilities Absolutely. as well. I think that's a common a common theme that people just, they need to ask the question. Yep. And finally, number 20, don't think about retirement, but financial independence. The goal shouldn't be about making it to a certain age so you can ride off into the sunset, but rather getting to the point where you don't have to worry about money anymore. Retirement is a concept that is still evolving and no one knows how they'll feel once they reach that age. Becoming financially independent allows you to make decisions about how you spend your time on your own terms. Well said. I mean, I can think of countless clients that have decided to retire at a certain point and thought they'd be completely done. And then six months later or three years later, they get really bored and they're like, eh, I'm going to start dabbling back into what I did just a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, more power to them, but they're making that decision because they want to do it, not because they have to do it. Right. Right. And that's what I want to put clients in a position to do. Mm -hmm. And again, this was an excerpt from uh, Ben Carlson's new book, Everything You Need to Know About Saving for Retirement. So, um, Ben's work is really good, so I can only expect the same from this book. I would agree. Um, two listener questions we have, Matt. Okay. Um, question number one is from Mike, and Mike says, since we already have investments for our long-term goals to be met, would it make a difference setting aside a separate account for our children's college tuition, or do we keep our cash altogether for more gain? And I'll take this one first. Mike, I think it makes sense for you to set aside a separate account for children's college tuition because you need to take care of your own investments and your own retirement money first before helping your kids out, in my opinion. I would agree. Too many times I see, you know, parents are not successfully set up for their own retirement yet they're helping their kids with 529 contributions or helping them pay for college. But in reality, it's digging themselves into a deeper and deeper hole. So it's my recommendation that people make sure that, you know, their retirement saving is on track for their goals and objectives to retire the way they want to in retirement, even before contributing to a college savings account for their kids. Um, so to directly answer the question, Mike, I think they should be separate. I would agree with that. And when it comes to the type of account that makes the most sense, you know, internally, if we were in a client meeting, I would defer to our pair planner, Aaron Kramer, because, you know, there are different titling that could positively or negatively affect the FAFSA, uh, student financial aid mm -hmm. application. But I would agree. Keep it separate um, is something I would back you up on. Okay. Um. Number two uh, is a question from Dennis, and he says, Happy New Year to JWM. Thank you, Dennis. Happy New Year. Um, I learned something this week about qualified versus ordinary dividends, and I thought listeners may have the same question as I did. What is the difference between a qualified versus ordinary dividend 
and what is the tax treatment, excuse me, for each type. Okay. So I, I can start if you start, want to start. Yeah, sure. um, so the biggest difference between qualified dividends and ordinary dividends is the tax treatment, right? Mm-hmm. So qualified dividends are taxed at the capital gains tax rate, which is either 0%, 15%, or 20% based on your ordinary income tax bracket. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, ordinary dividends are taxed at your ordinary federal income tax rate. Okay. So ordinary dividends are at a subject to a much higher tax rate than qualified dividends. Okay. And there's qualified dividend uh, IRS requirements. There's three of them mainly that I'll, that I'll list off here. The first is that the dividend has to be paid by a U.S. company or a qualifying foreign company. So in most cases, Matt, that's the the foreign company trades on a U.S. exchange, for example, like an Alibaba. Got it. Okay. Uh, number two is that the dividend is not listed with the IRS as ordinary. So there's some dividends that are not qualified. Things that fall into this category are REITs, Master Limited Partnerships, employee stock options, which a lot of people might not realize, hmm. and uh, obviously like interest earned on bank accounts or money market funds. Those are uh, ordinary dividends dividends that you will pay your ordinary income tax rate on. Okay. Number three is the holding period of the stock. So investors need to hold stock shares for either 60 days before the ex-dividend date or 60 days after the ex-dividend date. And the ex-dividend date for people that aren't aware of it is just the date you must hold the stock buy to receive the next dividend that the company pays out. Correct. So you can look up, you know, those dates for each individual stock if you wanted to, to make sure you own the company, um, you know, before that date to receive the dividend. Well put. I mean, the only thing I would add to it as maybe a mindful cheat is that if it's an ordinary dividend, it's going to be made passively. Passive income Mm -hmm. is kind of a cheat that I always kind of use. So an example of that is interest right? For, for loans is typically how that's derived. So when you think about the REITs, they obviously make their money by leveraging. And um, that's another way that I always remember what's ordinary and what's qualified. Right. Qualified dividend is going to be something that was actually income and profits that was earned by a company. And then they're sharing that with their shareholders. Right. That's a qualified yeah, dividend. That's a good way to think about it. So I always think about it passive or not. And that's kind of how I keep that behind the scenes, Dennis. I wanted to share that with you. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Well, I think uh, that's all we had. Is there anything else you want to mention before we wrap up here? Um, Last thing, I might sound like a broken record. We're going to hit the peak of earnings reports next week and the week after, Mark. So you're going to see a lot of of headlines, maybe from um, a lot of stocks, if listeners hold ordinary um, individual names. So just uh, want to throw that out there that we are in the peak of earnings season in the next two weeks. Okay. Well, with that being said, we'll leave it there for the week. And thanks everyone for joining us again for the 81st episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a great rest of the week and enjoy the weekend. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share benefits 
beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com. And we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.